Today, my nerdy friends, it is Monday, November 27th, in the year of our Lord, 2023, and I'm going to answer whatever questions you guys put in front of me. You asked your questions, you voted on your favorites, I sorted them in order from most up-thumbed or whatever to least up-thumbed, and I'm just going to go from the top on down and we're going to get through as many of these as we can and I don't I can't skip any by law if I were to skip them I would go to jail it's horrible first question comes from platitude platitude says any thoughts on the open ai drama I guess so. So for those of you who haven't been following, the OpenAI company has been undergoing craziness because they had they had a huge investment from Microsoft, right? And Microsoft is basing like their whole future on the OpenAI large language model stuff, right? Like that's what they're using behind the scenes for all of the things that are coming out, the new co-pilot stuff that they're going to be integrating into Windows 10 and Windows 11, and they're going to use this weird AI to like replace the start menu. It's insane. It's complete and utter insanity. And the the CEO got ousted of a OpenAI, got ousted by the board, and then they thought about re-implementing him, but then they didn't, and then the board voted differently, and then the guy, then he came back, then the guy got hired by Microsoft and moved over to Microsoft. Basically, it's been this round and round thing, and honestly, I don't even think they're done with it yet. I I, I figure they're they've got a few more rounds of infighting, because there's a lot of people looking to make a lot of money and want to have a lot of control over it. If Microsoft is betting the whole farm on what OpenAI as a company is providing people want a piece of that pie and there's a lot of investment a lot of future speculative investment going throughout the industry and every random tom dick and harry run company is rebasing their whole company around ai chatbots now i mean dropbox is an open ai is a, is a is an ai company now Seriously, Dropbox, the file storage people. It's ridiculous. It's like you can't you can't throw a rock at a tech company now that hasn't rebased themselves as an AI thing. GitHub. GitHub is just an AI platform now. They're moving away from like source control and they're going to be in the future an AI company. The this new CEO of GitHub came out, which is owned by Microsoft, so it kind of makes sense because this is this is their future apparently. They came out and they made a statement where they said, you know, GitHub was was founded on Git. It was built on top of Git for source control, which, duh, GitHub. We're going to go into the future and we're going to be based on AI, on chat, GPT, and Copilot. They're, they're going to be GitHub still, but they're going to be all... Anyway, it's ridiculous. So it's basically, it's, it's, it's a fight over power, it's a fight over control, it's a fight over money, and it's a whole lot of really big egos fighting each other. People on boards, people in venture capital investment companies, big firms like Microsoft, you know there's a ton of people throwing their weight around trying to see what, what they can do with it. It's not done. I, I, honestly, I find the, the whole thing uh, amusing, 
uh, exhausting and just plain stupid. Uh, considering, I, I bet, I bet they're going to be fighting over the open AI billions of dollars of valuation. And then flash forward 10 years from now, I don't even know if they'll be a company. I honestly don't know. I, I, I have my serious doubts. I'm, I smell the air and I'm like, what's that I smell? An overvalued fad? Interesting. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but uh, it's interesting. I would love to hear what you guys think about it, but mm, I don't know. Uh, Platitude also asked. Now, Platitude. Platitude was a very sneaky boy. Platitude went onto Locals, asked two questions in a single comment, and that got voted all the way to the top. He snuck in two for one there. Very sneaky, Platitude. But I'm going to get to both of them now, but you're being very sneaky. Platitude asks in his second question, Have you ever run into tech fatigue where you just had to step away from technology for a while? All the time. Uh, regularly. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's not just that I need to step away from technology. It's that I need to step away from certain kinds of technology more than anything else. Like... Like, I've gotten to a point where I was burnt out on coding. You know, I, I, I was, I was in, in the trenches working, you know, between 60 and 80 hours a week through one death march hell week after another to try and ship various projects. And, and I was so burnt out on coding that I just had to stop for a while. And honestly, I, I stepped away from coding for, for over a year at one point. I didn't code at all. And um, once, once I rejuvenated my soul, I got back into it and loved it again. But I, I did. I had to step away because I was just burnt to a crisp on it. And I think, I think we all kind of get that way sometimes, whether it's coding or just in general with tech. But what I find it hits me the most is certain kinds of technology wears on me after a while. The always hyper-connectedness of all things, it, it has so many benefits. Like if I can, I can walk around with my big, harkin chunky smartphone in here and do anything. I can literally do my whole job from it. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And I can access any bit of information ever. That's amazing. And anyone I've ever met in my entire life can get a hold of me, as well as the billions of people who just want to yell at me who I've never met. They can get a hold of me whenever they want. That's pretty incredible that that's possible. But it wears on you after a while. And so what I find is I have to unplug from that as often as possible uh, because it's just, it's just too much. It's just overwhelming. And it's not just the tech it's the it's almost that i have to unplug from the way other people use the tech you know what i mean i have to make myself unavailable in order to get to a point where i can enjoy it for what it is again because like like this i've got this big android phone here right nice big chunky thumb keyboard and nice big screen it's got six gigs of ram on it i mean it's a technological marvel i mean let's be honest it's pretty darn impressive and I can run emulators for every every computer and console I've I've ever loved, all on this one little device. I can do my job. I can edit videos on it. It's amazing. It's amazing. But when I get overwhelmed, it's hard to appreciate it for what it is. It's hard to really look at it with those fresh eyes and go, wow, this is cool. You know what I mean? Like it's like, oh man, that's neat. That's neat. How did that happen? 
I kind of I kind of liken it to um, to watching superhero movies, right? And you watch, like, let's say all the Marvel movies. Let's say you watch all the Marvel and Avenger movies, and you keep watching them. And after a while, you hit this point where you're where you take for granted. And not just you, but all the characters on screen take for granted all of the superness of it all, right? Like the like the fact that Iron Man's flying around and and all that, and Thor's calling thunder down from the sky, like, right? The awesomeness of it is kind of it kind of dulls your senses to it. You can't the the, the bad plots and the and the other problems kind of make it so you're almost jaded against it after a while. And then occasionally they'll add in a character like um, like a Spider-Man character. And one of Spider-Man's great strengths is that he has these young eyes. And he comes into it and he's like, whoa, you guys can fly? Whoa, your, wing, your wings and jetpack are cool. Like, that's neat. Like, and you're like, okay, it is really cool. And it is really neat. And it is really fun and exciting. All of the things I can do with this little little modern marvels. But I get so jaded on it after a while. So I do have to take breaks. And sometimes they're little breaks and sometimes they're long breaks. But because of my, the combination of my career and who I am, I'm just, I'm just nerdy. I'm not going to be walking away from all technology entirely. So I have to... I have to isolate it. I have to say, okay, this type of technology, these smart, inter- always connected smartphones, they go into a Faraday cage or a Faraday bag when I'm at home. So I don't use them. Things like that. In fact, there's another question along these lines that we'll get to in a moment. But yeah, I have to take breaks. Otherwise, I just go insane. Bradford asks, Serenity, Open Indiana. And the BSDs are now the only operating systems where the people making them don't hate half the population. Man, they ain't that the truth. Do you think that any of these could take Linux's place for niche desktops long term? Yes. Okay. The core issue that Bradford's getting at, I think there's really two things here. The first is that there are a large number of, of... uh, open source projects and open source operating systems in particular that have taken strangely exclusionary stances where they have said if you are a certain kind of person, if you meet certain definitions of of who you are, how you think, where you live, what you vote for, etc., we don't want you using our software or we don't want you involved in our in our project. And the exclusions that they put in place are vast and sweeping, right? Like the, like half of the population, right? It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And so when that is happening, what do we as users, as contributors, as programmers, as, as advocates for technology, what do we do? And I think for many of us, the answer is that we we seek an alternative where we are wanted, where where people want us to be around, or at the very least, simply don't hate who whoever we are. Right? Technology, in my opinion, should be agnostic of religion and politics and and ethnicities and borders and and everything else. Technology is technology, and I I just I feel like we should all be able to bond over our common love of the nerdy technology. These these some computers, right? We shouldn't we shouldn't separate ourselves along those lines. That's just not the nerdy way. Um, but when when that happens, we look for the alternatives. So if we are Linux users right now, 
If you're a Linux user and you were using uh, one of the many different Linux systems that are out there that have gone down that route, you know, like uh, like Elementary or OpenSUSE or, or any of the many others, what where do you go? You know, and, and you've seen the issues with the Linux Foundation kind of going in that direction as well. Um, where do you go? Where do you find that nerdy sanctuary where you can feel good? about using the operating system that's in front of you. And you know that the people who build that software stack, they're excited to have you there. They're happy to have you there. The, the very least, they're not going to say get out because of whoever you are. And uh, Bradford brings up Serenity, Open Indiana, and the various BSDs. And uh, I think that those are extraordinarily viable candidates for over the coming years being very reasonable systems to use as our as our primary desktops. I mean, primary. Open Indiana and the BSDs, in my opinion, are right now. And Open Indiana, for those who don't know, is is Solaris. I mean, it's it's the open sourced Solaris and then forked again. <laughs> and now we have we have Open Indiana and and there's a couple of variations therein, but we have Solaris. And Solaris is a very mature desktop environment. The, the downside with, with Open Indiana and all the other Solaris lineage systems is the total availability of modern software. Um, there's not a huge, a huge amount available, but for most of us, there is plenty. Can you get a modern web browser on it? Yes, you can. Word processors and spreadsheets? Absolutely. Emulators and like like that you use to play you know DOS games. I think Scum VM even have a has a version for it. Yes, you can. So most of the games that I play, which were popular in the 1980s and 1990s and early 2000s, yeah, I'm gonna be able to play them on on Open Indiana. And then the same is true on the BSDs as well. And a variation on the same problem comes into play there, where they don't have the full gamut of, of software options available like we do with Linux. I mean, Linux is at a place right now where the total number of software options available to you are just obscene. I mean, you can install Steam and, and a bazillion different AAA commercial titles. And so you don't necessarily really have that, oh, that luxury if you're running a Solaris or, or OpenBSD, et cetera, based, based system. But what you do have is a robust, mature, full-featured operating system that is going to have, if you're the right kind of person, everything you're going to need. Uh, now, for example, there are some downsides. One, hardware support. And hardware support is, a, is an issue for all of the operating systems that, that Bradford mentions. Um, whereas Linux, I mean, shoot, at this point, Linux you can install on just about anything, right? And have massively available hardware support. It's, it's it's almost rare that you could go buy a a laptop or or whatnot and not be able to get your Wi-Fi and sound and accelerated video and everything else working under Linux. Sometimes with a little struggle, but it's always doable. OpenBSD, FreeBSD, NetBSD, all the various BSD iterations. No, uh, that's just simply not the case at this point. Uh, and Open Indiana is is even worse off. Uh, your your total number of of hardware options available to you are somewhat limited. Now, that said, if you plan a little bit ahead, you can 
you know, just like you can with with so many operating systems, you can have them running great on the hardware available. It's just you have to be a little more picky and choosy about which hardware you buy. So you can't just grab all of the random parts you already have laying around and slap Open Indiana or BSDs on it. Some sometimes that'll work out great. Sometimes it won't. Serenity is a little bit further off. Serenity has those problems with hardware times a thousand. It really doesn't run well on bare bones hardware at this point. You are really running it in a virtual machine. It's becoming an increasingly mature and viable system, but there are two core problems that are preventing Serenity from being usable in the near future. And and one is the, the available hardware support and drivers. That's not a small issue, right? Like, what are they going to do in order to, to tackle that? It's uncertain. Maybe they'll develop their own drivers bit by bit like they have been, which I think is probably the route Serenity would go knowing their style, their their uh, their eagerness to not just port code but write new stuff. Um, I don't think they're going to go down the haiku route where they just simply borrow free BSD's Wi-Fi driver stack, right? Like, I just don't, I don't think Serenity would go that way. Um, so, so we've got a much longer road ahead of us until Serenity has viable hardware support. The other issue Serenity has is a, a bit of core functionality. In order to install software on Serenity and do OS updates, you do a complete recompile of everything the os the the individual applications all of it and it's a very simple process and it and it can honestly be a fairly quick process if you have a beefy enough machine but because of how it's set up you really need a host machine that's you know linux or windows and whatnot with serenity running in a virtual machine that's the way it's designed right now it's not designed to be running on bare metal and and, and andreas kling the author of serenity he knows this i mean this was this is all by design is there's smart people on this project it's just at this point that has not been a priority for them their priority has been refining and and implementing parts of the os itself and building up their their web rendering engine uh, in in Ladybird, so that they have a good robust web browser. And and I I don't blame them for going down that route. But what that means is, for us using it as a replacement for Windows or Mac or Linux simply isn't viable now. And earlier this year, I felt like it would be viable. Uh, it would be approaching viability by this point. But I think that was based basing an assumption that simply proved to be untrue. And that assumption was that the people working on it, including Andreas, wanted to go down that line. And as I watch them and as I talk to them, and I'm incredibly impressed with the work they do, it is very clear that that's not the direction they want to go right now. So Serenity is going to be a little ways out. Now, once they get to the point where it's easy to install software in Serenity just by downloading it and installing a package or copying a file over or however they want to implement it, and you can do OS updates inside the OS itself, and they start adding a few additional bits of hardware support and driver support so it can run at least on a small subset of hardware, maybe like just pick one laptop line, right? Let's just say like, uh, like pick like the Dell XPS laptops or something like that and say that's the only one we'll support. Once they're at that point, yes, Serenity 
is absolutely a viable platform for, for desktops for, for many of us. So the good news is that there are options. Um, in fact, the great news is that some of them are viable now. In my personal opinion, um, OpenBSD is probably uh, chief among them. Um, FreeBSD is is good. They've had some missteps in the past, but I think by and large, they're a um, they're focused on the technology more than anything else. They they, I, it, many of you will remember Huggate, where they where they specifically forbade digital hugs. Like you can't you can't send people an animated GIF of a hug or a hug emoji because that was literally violence if you did that right. I and many other people made fun of them mercilessly for that because it's it was ridiculous, right? And and at that time, the FreeBSD Foundation, the FreeBSD board was overrun by, how do I put this? Ridiculous people, right? By people that were smart, by people that did quality engineering, who were good coders, who were good many other disciplines but had just some crazy wackadoodle ideas that really drove the free BSD community apart. It kind of just split a wedge in it where between the the wackadoodle people and the non-wackadoodle people. It's not even it wasn't even down political lines. I mean, some people may call it political lines, but what it really was 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 just a couple of people that were on the board that were pushing it in a very bizarre direction that nobody quite understood. Because people on all political spectrums were like, um, uh, I don't think an animated GIF of a hug needs to be specifically forbade in the code of conduct. Um, so, so they were made fun of. It took about a year or two until they kind of got that all out of their system. The people that were there pushing those sorts of things were voted off the board. The the community behind FreeBSD, they dropped that stuff specifically. They updated all their codes of conduct and rules to, to remove all the craziness. Um, you know, I still have some some disagreements with how they're structured and 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 how they implement certain things. But overall, they've gotten much more reasonable. And I I don't anticipate them going back the direction of the wackadoodliness. So there are a lot of options to available to us. And I think the the BSDs and Solaris, uh, the and the Solaris uh, descendants are are very very viable very viable. In fact, I've, I've thought about them quite a bit lately because I'm, I'm in the same boat as I think Bradford is. And I know many other people are where I have come to rely on Linux. I love Linux as a system. I, I, I've been covering Linux and developing for Linux and using Linux and talking about Linux for going on. It'll be close to 20 years in a couple of years. It's always 17, 18 years now. And I, 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 I hate to, to abandon ship, but at the same time, there are some really distinct problems within the Linux ecosystem, uh, organizational issues, financing issues, technological issues, political issues. There's just so many issues that maybe it is time to really, really seriously consider me pivoting what I personally use. The problem I run into is I can't use Open Indiana or OpenBSD for all of the video work that I do, right? So all of the solutions that I have in place currently require 
uh, Linux or Windows or Mac. Now that's starting to change a little bit. Um, that's 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 starting to change in some really good ways for me. Uh, for example, and I'll, I'll move on from this question momentarily, but I think this is this is kind of an interesting thing. Um, I like to do these video shows, right? I like to have a little slide up here, uh, mean a little thumbnail. And I like to be able to do live streams and all these sorts of things. There hasn't been a really good way for me to do that from, say, FreeBSD, right? Or OpenBSD. It hasn't been viable. There are new solutions that are in beta right now. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking of Rumble Studio that allow me to do all of it via a decently modern browser or my Android phone entirely, which means for the, for the remainder of my desktop experience, I can move over effectively to one of the BSDs and potentially even open Indiana if, if it runs well on any particular hardware. And so that's happening over the coming months. And that's it's already in beta, and I, I think once they work out a couple of very small kinks, it's going to be there for me. That doesn't mean it's going to be there for everybody else, and that doesn't mean that, that those platforms are, are going to be viable for people who have a, an absolutely gigantic Steam game library, right? Like the, uh, Moving away from that's going to be tough. But for me, I do all of my modern gaming on a console. I do all of my retro gaming on my computer. So it works for me. It, it really does. Once I get the video stuff figured out where I can do video production work, which I can in Rumble Studio, at least what I do, I'm good to go. So, so yes, I think that, that those, those operating systems could not only take over Linux's place for many of us, in the long term, I think it can do it in the short term too. And personally, I'm looking at doing that over the coming months, um, just moving entirely away from Linux over to other other platform options. Um, and that's that's just it, which is both sad and exciting and wonderful all at the same time. Uh, Retropunk, Retropunk asks, let's rewind the clock to New Year's Eve, 1999. With the new millennium on the horizon, you have the opportunity to reshape the direction that consumer and enterprise tech would take. What changes would you make from what really happened? And what do you think things of today would look like because of it? Ooh, things went in some crazy directions. Things went in some crazy directions once the 2000s hit. I, I think I'm not alone when I feel like computing peaked in the 90s. And I, and, I, and, I, and I say that fully understanding that the technology we have now, the speed of our machines, the graphical capabilities of our machines, the storage capabilities of our machines far outpaces anything we could have even dreamed of in the 90s. But what I'm talking about really is the way we interact with our machines. And this is where I, things, I think things went wrong. When we were in the 90s, we machines were there to be used by us. Nowadays, we are there to be used by machines increasingly often, right? I think that when we move towards the hyper-connectedness of all things, 
where everything has an always-on internet connection and every software and hardware company assumes an active internet connection. I mean, shoot, Linux desktops, Mac OS, Windows. I mean, Windows is going uh, always-connected AI co-pilot craziness now. And I think this is where we've fundamentally gone wrong. So what I personally would love to have seen changed is something that I think I could not have changed myself because I would have had to have drug the whole industry and all of mankind kicking and screaming in a direction that mankind did not want to go. And that is to not move towards always hyper-connected smartphones. I think that is the fundamental moment when things began to shift in that bad direction. Now, high bandwidth, always available internet connectivity, awesome. But where we made the mistake was in implementing it everywhere, right? It, this is the fundamental problem with mankind. This is, and I've talked about this before, and it's what we always do with new technology. We come up with something new. Something amazing, right? Like, so the fact that I can hop online whenever I want to and look something up on my Android smartphone is amazing, objectively amazing. I mean, full-on Star Trek awesomeness. That's cool. But what we did was what we always do. Here goes the train. I don't know if you're going to hear that train chugging by. Love the trains. Um... I love trains so much. I unreasonably amount of, of train loving. I absolutely love trains. I love traveling by trains. I love taking the Amtrak around the United States. It's so much fun. It's so much fun. I, it, I, I, I hate flying and I love trains. Anyway, I don't even know if you guys could hear the train, but I, I love the trains. Um, now I just want to talk about trains. I should start a train show, the train action show. All right. Uh, but what we always do is we always overdo it. Antibiotics is, is one of my favorite examples because antibiotics save so many lives, my life, everyone else's life. I mean, so I, I don't even know if I know anyone who hasn't benefited from antibiotics, right? But then we overused it. And it's not that we should stop using antibiotics, but we overused it so much. We created these, we created these antibiotic-resistant bacterias and all sorts of medical problems that wouldn't have existed if we could have just pumped the brakes a little bit and said, wait a minute, before we start giving people antibiotics like Tic Tacs, let's wait and think about this for a minute. Maybe we should just reserve these for, nope, nope, we're going to give it to everybody nonstop like crazy, right? Gonna give it to all of our food, gonna give it to everything. So much antibiotics, it's nuts. I'm like, okay, maybe we should have thought about this a little bit. Maybe we should have thought through the ramifications and the always hyper-connectedness of, of smartphones and really everything else, I think is the same way. Amazing, life-changing. I can do my work from wherever I want. I can do my work from a park if I want to. I can I can work anytime, day or night. This is amazing. But the fact that I remain always on, the fact that my equipment is on connected by default and constantly polling and constantly alerting me to new things, that's where we went wrong. And I don't think there's anything I could say or have done back then, no matter how many resources I had. If I had been, if I had been the richest man on earth, 
people would not have listened to me. They wouldn't have stopped. I think it's, this was a mistake we had to make, and I don't think we're done making it. We're going to keep making this mistake because, I mean, look at, look at what everyone's doing with AI. The problem with AI is not just the, the scraping of the data and the, and the potential dumbing down of people. There's a lot of problems with AI. I know. I hear a bunch of people out there who are like, I like AI. I know you do. See, again, there's cool aspects to all things. But the, one of the big problems is, is it's all happening on remote servers, which, which continues to reinforce the let's have everyone be hyper permanently connected at all times. That's a problem. That's a problem logistically. That's a problem practically. There's multiple bad impacts. And I just don't think there's any way that I could have made people stop doing it. We have to make that mistake. People have to feel the ramifications from that mistake before they would fix it. That's a good question, though. Greg asks, do you know where I put my good pen? It's in the top drawer near the back. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. Let's let's do an experiment. Everyone, if you've got your headphones on, unplug your headphones and turn your volume up for a minute. Turn your volume up on your laptop, your smartphone, whatever you're using to 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 listen to this. Turn turn that volume, crank it up. Let's do an experiment here. Okay, Google. Where did Greg put his good pen? Whatever the results from that, whatever Google comes back with, people go ahead and, and let Greg know over at lunduke.locals.com where his good pen is. Um, uh, oh, what's the, what's the Alexa thing? Is it, is it uh, hey Alexa, where did Greg put his good pen? Right, right. Oh, I, I don't even remember what the Siri thing is. Is it hey Siri? Okay, Siri. Hey Siri, where's Greg's pen? Hopefully, a lot of people were annoyed at, at their devices shouting things at them right now. I hope that helped, Greg. I'm curious to see if anyone knows where Greg's pen is. I bet, I bet you one of those companies does. Um, Arrecretus, sorry if I'm butchering your name, my friend, asks, Some years ago, you published a video about computing like it was the 1980s. Uh, for example, only at stations rather than with always connected pocket devices. There's a theme this week. I'm wondering how long that lasted and if there was ever a follow-up that I missed. I ask because I think there's really something to the idea. So, uh, yes. Yes, my friend. Uh, in fact, the follow-up to that has been just continually uh, since then. I've just continued to talk about things related to this. Uh, there hasn't been uh, an in-depth, you know, singular follow-up to it. But yes, as a general rule of thumb, that actually lasted for quite some time. And how I did it, uh, for those of you who are, who are new around here, was really simple. When I came home, I, I plugged in my phone so it was all charged and put it like in a drawer um, near the front door or we had a, a spot in the kitchen and put it, put it away, right? And then set up stations around the house where we use connected devices. So at our TV, we had, uh, we had an Xbox and, that's where, and, our, and our Nintendo consoles and all that. That was all on the TV, right? So that's where we had nice gaming stations that were over there. And those were always connected and people could play online. But it was at a station, right? When I did my work, and, I, and for the most part, when I interacted with all of you, I was doing so sitting at my desk, 
in my studio. So this was this was back when I had the Lunduke studio all set up. Uh, a lot of you might remember I had a workbench behind me and a big giant yellow computer space off to the side. And uh, hopefully one day soon we'll have that all rocking and rolling again. And I would sit at my desk and I would talk to all of you. I would plan my shows. I would record and post my shows and do that all from a station, right? And that's where I allowed myself to do social media stuff. Twitter and whatever from that station. And when I got up, I wandered around my house and I didn't have that going. Now I had electronics available to me, but not connected electronics, right? So uh, so I had um, I had a little Nokia N810. I, I miss I miss that little thing. I, uh, uh, I I need to get a new one. A new one. That was it was a fantastic little handheld, little Linux powered handheld, but it was so much fun. Um, but I would not have it connected to the Wi-Fi. I had Wi-Fi in the house, but I generally didn't use it. It was it was more often than not not even connected to by anything. We 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 used Ethernet wherever it was possible. And uh, so I would have electronics for taking notes and playing games and making little voice notes and uh, you know doing all sorts of stuff, but not connected out to the internet. And it, and it really was nice because it 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 did. It brought me back to the '80s and the '90s where. I could have a certain level of connectivity, sort sort of like back in the the eighties and early nineties when you dial up a BBS when you wanted to go online. You sat at a station and did that, and then you got up and you did something else. It helped because it allowed me to, for multiple reasons. One, I wasn't getting constantly inundated with alerts. Right? It wasn't. It wasn't. Bing. You you know you've got mail uh, constantly. Um, I, I know most people don't have the you've got mail thing going on anymore, but you know what I'm talking about. And but but even more than that, almost almost a million times more important than that was that it allowed me to better focus myself when I said, OK, it's time to work, plot myself down. I'm at my station, I'm recording shows, I'm interacting with the audience, I'm taking notes, I'm, I'm sending emails with, with people to coordinate and schedule interviews, whatever it is, I'm at my working station. When I'm done working, I get up, I walk somewhere else. When it's game time, when I wanna play with the kids or with my wife or just by myself, I sit down at a gaming station. Right in this case, just in front of the living room television, and I just sat down and I played. That's what was being done then, not something else, not playing, plus whatever's coming up on my phone, just playing, being there with the kids, with the wife, with myself, with my dog, playing, and the the distractions go away. Um, now, if some people don't necessarily have problems with any of this, uh, with, with the distractions from the always connected devices that are on them and everywhere. Um, and sometimes I feel like I don't either, but other times I definitely do. And creating those stations really helped with that. Now that's gone out the window for me. I, I used that for, for a number of years. Currently, um, we've been living on the road for quite some time. We've, we've been traveling the country in an, R, in an RV, you know, going to the national parks and everything. And because of that, we haven't really had the space to set up 
desks with desktop computers and 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 everything else so we've had we've relied more on mobile gadgetry which means more smartphones more laptops more tablets and that sort of thing which don't lend itself well to sitting at a station for it right it's just not it's not as viable of an option for me in the way i've lived now that's all coming to an end and then we're getting settled into a nice new area and as we as we get settled in we'll we'll resume getting that that sort of uh station based computing uh going again and it really was a a benefit and i absolutely loved it and i i i highly highly recommend it i i truly do it works works phenomenally well uh geek on skates asks which retro computer do you enjoy programming the most as much as i love playing commodore 64 games for programming i find myself more interested in the vic 20 i'm gonna guess based on linux tycoon and the other games you've built that your answer is dos uh you know i get this because there are some uh, retro computing platforms that I absolutely adore. And one of them is like the old Amigas. I love the old Amigas. I don't love programming for the old Amigas. Um, to be fair, I haven't given it a fair shot, and I'm hoping to rectify that in the coming week. Uh, but uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, what I what I really I enjoy coding for a pretty wide number of platforms, honestly. But they're all very different, and it depends on my mood. I do love coding for DOS. And the reason I love coding for DOS is that I get full control of my system. Now, DOS is not unique in that regard. There's plenty of systems where you you get full control over it. But what I love about DOS is I love that, that if I settle on a, let's say, early 1990s DOS computer... I have a machine that I have a lot of resources available, but not too much, right? So maybe I'll have a megabyte of RAM. Maybe I'll have four megabytes of RAM. Maybe I'll just have 640K, but I'll have a significant amount of memory to work with. So I can, I can tackle pretty big, beefy things, crunching large amounts of data, um, more so than I could, say, with a, a Commodore 64 or an Apple II. As much as I love Commodore 64s and Apple IIs, the, I find that the level of restriction that they have because of their amount of, of memory and the like uh, puts just a little bit too much of a resource constraint on me. I love resource-constrained machines, but I like to have a little bit more than what the, say, Commodore 64 is providing. Um, once you get up to about, I don't know, honestly, even 512K of RAM, at that point, you can do a lot, right? <clears throat> you can accomplish some amazing things in, in 640K. 640K ought to be enough for anybody, as they say in the good book. Um, and I, I tend to agree with that. And so I like DOS because of that sweet spot in the total amount of resources available and the fact that I can take over the whole machine. I love coding for DOS in C. I love coding for DOS in BASIC. I love BASIC. It's so much fun. I love coding for DOS in Pascal. I'm not a huge assembly guy. I've done it a few times when it's been necessary, but it's just not as fun for me. Um, I, I have a friend of mine who just who just when he sits down 
with uh, he uses Masm, the Microsoft Assembler, and because it's what he's been using since the I think since the eighties or nineties, and he just loves it. He finds it to be a, a warm, comfortable place for him. It's home. That's just not me. Um, I like a little bit higher level than assembly. So I, I like C and Pascal and basic and those sorts of things on DOS. I really, really do. Now that said, that said, there is some really fun programming to be had. Pascal programming for the older Macintoshes is really quite fun, quirky, weird, some problems in there, lots of bugs, honestly, weird workarounds for them. But it's a fun system. They're a fun set of systems to program for in Pascal. A lot of people don't realize that the the old Macintoshes were all Pascal. The Macintosh toolbox, Pascal. I mean, sure, a lot of software was built in C and C++ using things like Code Warrior and whatnot for the Macintosh, the early ones. Um, but um, the the underlying API set, all that was all built with Pascal and with Pascal in mind. So it was, if you wanted to do like you know, Pascal with a GUI development back then on a Mac. It was a lot of fun. It was, it was really was a lot of fun. Um, I, I also like a lot of, a lot of various scripting and, and whatnot languages from some of the older systems. Rex is a lot of fun. Uh, if you've never played around with Rex under say Amiga or OS two, uh, I highly recommend it. It's, it's, it's not a bad system. It really isn't. And there, there's a lot of things like that. I just really enjoy but uh, yeah, there, there's there's more more than one particular favorite programming platform for me. It there's a there's this line in the sand where things I don't like anything after a certain point. I don't find it as fun as as some of the older stuff. Um, I did a lot of Win32 and C C++ programming back in the day, and for me. That was uh, that was about as far down that road as I really liked getting. Once it got you know fully, you know WinForms and .NET and everything else on Windows, ugh, it just it it wasn't as it wasn't as great. Um, modern Mac programming, I feel the same way. I did a ton of work professionally in uh, Objective C using the old OpenStep NextStep frameworks, uh, which they end up calling Coco in in, in modern Mac terminology and um, it while it's a great system that has really amazing design stuff around it <clears throat> it's just not as fun for me I like the systems that are a little more resource constrained but but with enough to, to get yourself in trouble DOS is a lot of fun in that regard Patrick Patrick asks what do you think it's going to take to get most of the decent tech youtubers and podcasters over to locals or something like it Titus Chris from Jupiter Broadcasting, all of them. Okay. It's going to take disaster. <laughs> so, you know, the examples you give are my friends, right? You know, people I've worked with, uh, founded networks with, and, and done shows with for years. And there are some truly fantastic YouTubers in retro computing and Linux and alternative operating systems and just tech in general. There's some really fantastic ones. And I've been talking to a lot of them about this topic for quite some time. And they all know the arguments. They know that YouTube is censoring them. They know that, that the ad apocalypse is here, that, it, that they're making increasingly less money on YouTube. 
which for those trying to do it full time is, is a huge problem. And, but they're scared. I mean, some of them won't use that term. They won't say that outright, but I can see it in their eyes. And I know what they're feeling. They've got these big audiences that they've built up, right? When they've got tens or hundreds of thousands of subscribers on on YouTube, why would they leave? And obviously, the reasons why they would leave are obvious, right? You, you, you leave because no matter how many you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers some of these folks have, you're getting increasingly less money per view. And the ads are becoming increasingly onerous, you know, increasingly less uh, relevant and more and more of them just being shoved all over the place in the middle of your shows, at the end of your shows, at the beginning of your shows, pop-ups over your shows. It's getting intense. And then on top of all that, you know, YouTube just generally doesn't treat people very nice. It mines all their data, sells it off to the highest bidder from whatever country. And I, I don't love it. I don't love it. And it's not a viable, most importantly, long-term business relationship to have. Um, and they know that. They know that. Uh, you see some people coming up with their own solutions. Uh, Jupiter Broadcasting, for example, my buddy Chris, uh, we founded Jupiter Broadcasting together many, many years back, and uh, he's he's keeping it going. God bless him. Uh, he's he's doing his best to keep it going, and he's pivoting over to the value for value cryptocurrency tipping model, which is kind of what I did with Library and Odyssey. Now, for me, with Library and Odyssey, it proved ultimately to have several Achilles heels, not least of which was problems with library and odyssey that were specific to them. But um, there was problems with the the general system. It, it was very limiting in, in what people were going to be ready and willing to utilize that cryptocurrency to do that tipping, to buy into the system. People had to buy the cryptocurrency, hold the cryptocurrency, use the cryptocurrency, and then you had to cash out the cryptocurrency. There were so many steps involved. And getting people to jump in was, was increasingly challenging. Um, uh, Titus. Titus has has kind of shifted his focus a little bit towards where you know you know people buy um, his uh, his win- or, or donate to his windows uh, scripts where it keeps you know windows light and easy and uh, and his shows are almost more um, promoting of that sort of thing uh, promoting of the the work he's doing there and so that that kind of makes more sense you know what I mean that to, to, to my to my eye that makes a certain amount of sense if he's not too worried about the ad revenue uh, from from the YouTube shows then then sure but what's interesting is knowing the numbers if and knowing what sort of views that Chris Titus and Jupiter Broadcasting and uh, Level One Techs and and so many others get, if let's say three of them decided to all come over to locals tomorrow, and they worked with me on it, and we all promoted each other, we all said yes, great new tech 
YouTubers coming over to locals, publishing all their stuff here so it can be viewed ad-free and, and no algorithms and, and, and it's all subscription models and no, no big tech influence. Awesome, right? All the good things. They would make so much more money than they're currently making. So much more. And the benefit to all of us, right? Because these are folks that who I, where I respect their opinions and, and whatnot as well. And I would subscribe to them as well. And I think that it would be a win for me, for them, for the audiences that they have. And it would be a win for everybody. Everyone would be respected more and it would be wonderful. But despite that being obviously the case, they haven't made the move. Now, why is that? Making change is terrifying. When you have a business going on, and for many of these, like Jupiter Broadcasting, that's a business. Making a significant change is terrifying. And most most people who run their shows, whether it's on YouTube or elsewhere are not quite as willing to take the risks as I am, um, for better or worse. I mean, I mean, you guys have seen me. I've, when I saw the problem with YouTube, I'm like, well, I have to bail. So I went and tried library. Well, that didn't work out. I got to try something else. I got to bail on library. Let's try Substack you know, and, and Patreon. And I tried them. Let's try it. And I was willing to kind of be the guinea pig. Now, finally, it all kind of worked out and I landed on locals and it was just delightful, right? It, it worked out. But I, I tried a number of, of, of failed attempts at using platforms that ultimately did not either fully solve the problem or had significant shortcomings of their own before I found one that solved all my problems and didn't have those shortcomings, right? It, 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 it took a while. They're afraid of having that same sort of thing because they're afraid of, of losing their audience. They're afraid of, of losing their income, whatever is left of it. I mean, if, it doesn't matter to them that YouTube is slowly ratcheting down how much money they can make. They're still making something. And there's no guarantee that they'll make that something somewhere else, right? So... Um, I think it's going to it's going to take total disaster in order to get them to actually make the move. I think once that disaster hits, like a, a like a, the ad apocalypse on YouTube hits in a truly bad way, like where it it goes below sustainability to an extreme degree, I think they'll make the move and I think they'll be happy for it that they did. I think it'll it'll take a little while though. That said, there's a couple of YouTubers that are in the process of making the move. Um, and I think the more people that do it, the easier it is going to be for everyone. Um, rising tide raises all ships. And, um, you know, we, we, uh, Rob Braxman is already kind of looking at it a little bit. He's tinkering. He's tinkering with the locals. And there's two others that uh, are, are known names to most of you that are going to be moving to locals um, as an option. Uh, neither of them are going locals exclusive, um, like like more like what I've done. But they're going to be adding locals as an option in the uh, in the coming in the coming weeks and months ahead. So hopefully, hopefully we'll see more of that because I, I think it is necessary, and I think it's a I think it's going to be good for everybody. So hopefully, hopefully. All right, all right, we got a few minutes left. Let's see what we can get through here. Uh, Veronica asks, any comments on the Brave attention token idea? I guess it comes under the crypto micropayments thing of funding content, which you've mentioned is good, but not up to scale. It's true. 
Could it help get more people into crypto, though? Most people aren't, aren't going to be making crypto transactions, but when Brave offers to pay them for uh, enduring little pop-up ads, maybe all those sorts who do paid surveys and things would learn stuff. It's, it's possible. Um, I, I, don't, I don't hate what, what Brave is doing. Uh, Brendan Ike, the the founder of JavaScript, uh, good guy. Um, you know, he's been on my show in the past, and, and I like what he's doing with Brave. In fact, Brave is my my preferred web browser at this point. Um, but uh, I am set up to to I use the basic attention tokens. Um, it, people who use Brave and are, and use and go to the YouTube channel. Um, I get basic attention tokens for that when it when it works. Um, it's a, an incredibly small amount. <clears throat> the 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 money that really accumulates there is is minuscule. Um, so it's it's the system works. It just exactly what you said, Veronica. It just currently isn't scaling, and it's the same sort of problem that that is happening in the Lightning Network right now. There's um there's a podcast thing called the the Lightning Network. Uh, Jupiter Broadcasting is using it right now, where people can tip fractions of a teeny tiny itty bitty fractions of a Bitcoin to each other to each other and to podcasts and they can split those up between each other. And it's just not a lot of people are using it. And a lot not a lot of people want to do it. And I think if a bunch of people did the basic attention token the uh, from Brave and the 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 cryptocurrency thing that they've got going at the Lightning podcast stuff. I think all of those could be viable mechanisms for uh, supporting shows, supporting content creators, and paying for those sorts of things. But it's just it just hasn't hit the 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 viability point. And in order to make that happen. It needs a lot of people to buy into it. And it's it, it, it's a big ask. I mean, just simply asking for people to become a subscriber to a service with the credit, regular credit, debit, et cetera card they already have and use is already a big ask. Now, asking them to use that to buy a cryptocurrency and set up an online cryptocurrency wallet and then transfer from that cryptocurrency wallet into a podcast network wallet that they then use to tip Oh my gosh, that's a that's a, that's a monumental ask, and some people are going to do it, and most people are not. That's the problem that that they come up against. It's just not it's not a good way currently to onboard people. It needs to be simplified much further, and um, and I don't know how they're going to accomplish that. I hope so. I, I I keep looking at it because I really do like a lot of these ideas. I liked it when I was using uh, LBRY. I like what I see with Lightning. I like what what Brave is doing, but none of them have made it. Have none of them have cracked that nut yet? Uh, Dan Joe Red asks, "Hey, with Firefox being as rotten as it is, what browser would you personally recommend?" Brave. Uh, that's that's what I, I personally recommend. Now, Brave is not perfect. Brave has some problems. A wide variety. We're almost out of time. I won't go into all of those, but um, but I think of the mainstream browsers that exist right now, it's what I'm using right now. Um, I, like in the background, I have Brave up and running, and I'll be uploading this show using Brave, and then I'll hop onto Locals using Brave. And, and I like Brave. Um, I, I like it in part because I know that the people using it have their hearts in the right place.
They want to build a great web browser that isn't, you're not filled with ads all the time and, and they want to have the best of the technology available and they just want to make it a good quality browser. That doesn't mean they always succeed, but I feel like they've got their hearts in the right place. Um, okay, we've got two left. Let's see, let's see if we can get through two more real quick. What's your favorite video or computer game input device? This comes from Soul. Aftermarket shipped with a certain console what is it how about your least favorite input device miley's favorites were this this is his this is his list uh sadly the original atari 2600 cx40s too painful after an intense session oh that is true for, you guys remember the atari 2600 that default little joystick the little little square joystick with the one red button in the corner and the simple little stick right in the middle those were tough joysticks to use. I love them, but he's not wrong. Those were the just not ergonomic. Uh, he also mentions the original TRS-80 color computer analog joysticks, soft and lacking any recentering spring force and weird, but yeah, those weren't great. The weird button placement on those were weird. <laughs> um, so for me, all right, um, all right, let's go, let's take this, this two, two at a time here. The computer input device, Membrane keyboards, like what we had on the original, the the Spectrum and some of the 8-bit Ataris, I cannot stand those membrane flat keyboards. Oh, the Spectrum was the worst. Uh, so was some of the early Ataris. Um, those those computers with their keyboards, not not just for typing, because yeah, typing on those was miserable. But playing games on a on a membrane keyboard was an awful experience. I hated it. I hated it so much. Um, but but here I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out there. Least favorite video game input device: the original NES controller. I know. I love my NES. I loved my NES. Love. Full love. Like, like I, if I love it so much, why don't I marry it? I probably should have. I loved it to death. <laughs> I love the NES. That original NES little rectangular controller is... It, nothing causes hand cramps. Or, or little little jabs from the corner of it into your palm or something. It's just there's just no comfortable way to hold an NES controller. They were awful, awful. Now that said, the the NES Advantage joystick was great. Um, the uh, the Super Nintendo controllers were a joy to use, right? They improved them. They were they didn't have the little they were they were just a little bit better size. They didn't have the little pokey corners like like the NES ones did. But I know I know it may be sacrilege, but I could not stand the NES controllers. I love the NES, but if I can play it with any other controller, I do. In fact, when I when I emulate NES games on a console, I never like using controllers modeled after the original NES. Like if I can use a controller modeled after a Super Nintendo, oh, I'm in heaven. It was it was a far superior controller. Far 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 superior controller. Okay. Okay, last question and this is a little bit of a, a promo for what's coming up there this week. Or 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 next week. Hold on a second. So, uh Scott, Scott asks, I'm going to bring something up here so I can I can speak with authority. He asks, 
Talk about the upcoming Amiga Week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What are your plans? Are you running an emulator? Which one? What OS? Or are you going to jump around a bit and try a few? Oh, I am looking forward to Amiga Week. So Amiga Week starts at 8 a.m. on Wednesday, December 6th and runs through 8 a.m. December 13th. So one full week. I looked those up to make sure I got the, num- the, the dates right. So that's uh, a week from this coming Wednesday. And the general rules for Amiga Week are simple. Anything Amiga related or Amiga adjacent. So what I mean by that, if you want to run an old hardware Amiga 1200, fine. Do you want to run Amiga OS 1.3 or 3.0 or whatever inside of an emulator, such as the uh, uh, UAE, the the ubiquitous Amiga emulator, ultimate Amiga? I think it's ubiquitous Amiga emulator, UAE. Um, One of the Amiga emulators, great. Run it it there. If you want to run Amiga-inspired operating systems, um, uh, such as those used with the Amiflons, we'll talk about those a little bit later, uh, MorphOS, the Amiga Research OS, Eros, or a couple of others, I think that's completely viable. If you would just like to spend time making your Linux system look as much like an Amiga as possible, that's also viable. Because there's a lot of aspects to what makes an Amiga an interesting system. In part, it's the hardware. The the truly unique and interesting hardware of the Amigas is, is, is truly a beauty and a sight to behold. The software for the Amiga is uniquely powerful, especially for the era that it came out, but it also has a distinct look to it, a distinct workflow to it, <clears throat> and very distinct usability. Like it's, it's, it's a different beast. And, and all of the systems that are based on Amigas are, have truly something special. And if you just want to spend the week playing some truly amazing Amiga games, Cinemaware titles, whatever, more power to you. So anything Amiga-related I feel like is, is, is completely uh, on the table. For me, I've got a couple of things that I want to do over the course of the week. First, I want to play a little bit of Amiga gaming, but I I do that every so often anyway. I want to branch out, not just gaming. Now, I don't have hardware. I'm not going to be running Amiga hardware because I don't have Amiga hardware. If I did, I would use it. If If an Amiga laptop had ever actually been made, I would have moved heaven and earth to get one and use that for Amiga Week. But alas, no Amiga laptop was ever made, which was a travesty. Uh, Maybe Ben Heck. Maybe I could convince Ben Heck to build me like an Amiga 1200 laptop. That would be be killer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be using Amiga OS in an emulator. And I am going to play around with some Amiga-specific programming tools. Uh, Rex... Blitz Basic, and a few others just to kick the tires, not to do anything big or crazy, just to spend a little more time living inside of an Amiga and and playing with Amiga programming tools of the era because I, I really want to spend more time with it. It, it deserves it. But And then uh, I want to set aside about two days 
And I haven't decided if I'm going to what I'm going to go with yet, but I think I'm going to go with the Amiga Research OS because you can install that on you know a nice x86 machines and run uh, Eros derived distributions of of their system on x86 machines, and you have uh, you know a full a full thing. Do I have? Let me. Do I even have that? I don't have that in front of me. Um, but it's it's really quite cool. You know, looks like an Amiga, works like an Amiga, has some Amiga compatibility stuff built into it for emulating old Amiga software and games and the like. And uh, I looked at utilizing some of the old Amiga-based systems, the Amiga-inspired systems, many, many years ago. I want to say five or more years ago. And I was really impressed with what I saw at the time. It was a buggy, and obviously I wasn't going to be able to replace my current systems with it. But I kind of want to, I want to see where it's at now. I haven't looked at those systems in years, and I really want to see where they're at. You know, what's the current state of the art for web browsing on those systems? Has it changed at all? I don't think it has, but I want to take a look. I want to take a look because there's there's some really interesting and cool systems there. All right, uh, that's that's what my plans. I'm going to be jumping around a whole lot because there's honestly there's more that I want to try in the world of Amiga than I can possibly get done in a week. I'll be chronicling that all over at lunduke.locals.com. Um, I'll show you guys what I'm doing. I'll post some how-tos and screenshots and whatnot so you can follow along. If you have an Amiga. Take pictures, show people what you think you want is the most cool about your Amiga. If you want to just follow along with emulators, uh, go with that. Uh, emulating an Amiga is is uh, a little bit trickier than, say, emulating for DOS. You can't just grab a copy of DOS Box and rock and roll. You need the Amiga OS ROMs and everything else, which can be purchased for just a couple of bucks. There are There is a, <coughs> a company called Cloanto that makes something called Amiga Forever. And you buy it, and I can't remember how much it was. I want to say like 20-something bucks. But you get um, a, a collection of Amiga ROMs from different Amiga hardware models, and you get Amiga Workbench files, which is which are the, the a little floppy disk images for, for the operating system itself. And then you can go from there and, and install all sorts of, of crazy software and, and set up a, a truly official, legit, and legal, legal Amiga emulation system. Um, I've picked up a copy of the Amiga Forever for myself so that I'm legit with it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, if anyone else wants to do that, that's definitely an option for them. And I'm just going to jump around. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end the week knowing more about using an Amiga, about what it actually feels like to use an Amiga than when I started. That's my personal goal. Uh, I know the history. And we'll, we'll, we'll dive into some of the Amiga history. And I've played a lot of the great games. That's, I, I've got that part. But I need to know what it feels like to be an Amiga user. I want that feeling. I want to know how what that whole workflow is like. I want to know what it's like to be like, okay, my system's an Amiga system. Part of what I want to do is for a couple of days, outside of posting to locals and uploading shows and whatnot, is have an Amiga emulator just full screen and just be like, I'll pretend like I have an Amiga laptop for a little bit. 
and just see what that that experience is like. I, I'm, I'm very curious. I'm very, very curious. So I'd love to hear how you guys are going to go about it. Um, save it up. Save it up. Next, next Wednesday, December 6th, did I say? I think it's December 6th. We'll kick off and I'll have a show about that and I'll post some articles and we'll, we'll rock and roll. All right. All right. We've, we've gone over time. We've gone over time, everybody. Thank you to everyone for hanging out with me. Thank you for posting all these questions. Coming soon, we're going to be changing up how we do Q&A shows. We're going to be doing a live call-in show very soon. We're waiting right now on them to finish the functionality inside Rumble Studio, which will allow us to take queued callers, video chat, audio chat, live callers, all of you joining me and it will be side by side and you can ask me questions we can talk about things we can have conversations i'm really looking forward to this they've given me a little bit of an inside peek at the functionality how it's being designed and it's great it is exactly what we need to make this happen from a, a real easy way i think it's going to be easy for all of you it's only going to be available for people who subscribe on locals uh the show will be available for everyone i'll be uploading the show to rumble uh, we'll be live streaming the show to YouTube, <clears throat> at least some of the time, <laughs> um, but Rumble as well. And it'll be posted and live streamed on Locals. But in order to join the show, you'll have to be a subscriber over on Locals. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But the number one reason is that that way I kind of filter out the riffraff, right? So if if you are committed to the to the to supporting the work that I do... I kind of know you're already going to play by the rules. You know what I mean? You're going to come on board and you're going to help out. And you're going to behave yourself and not use too many naughty words. And I think it's going to be fantastic. So so if you're not already a subscriber at lunduke.locals.com, go ahead and grab that. Uh, so you're already. I've been told that they're expecting to roll this functionality out in December. We all know how this goes, right, guys? Functionality like this slips a little bit. Shipping things in December is hard. I'm going to cut them some slack, and I'm assuming it's hitting us in January. I, looking at the functionality they're building, they seem really confident end of December. I'm going to say end of January. <laughs> but that's coming pretty soon. So we'll do a few more of, of these Q&A shows where people can ask a question just written like this. But um, we'll be transitioning more often to the live call-in shows as soon as those are available. Um, I'm part of the Rumble Studio beta program, so we'll, we'll rock and roll with that as soon as those are out. All right, everybody. Thank you all for the support. Thank you all for being amazing and asking fantastic questions. And that, ladies and gentlemen, Boys and girls, nerds and nerdettes, I do declare, end broadcast.